Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Beijing. Last Friday, the U.S. Commerce Department added 31 Chinese entities to its so-called unverified list and expanded its export controls, aiming to, quote-unquote, contain China's ability to purchase and manufacture high-end chips used in military applications. Analysts say this could signal a single-minded focus on thwarting Chinese capabilities. This move follows a series of other measures by the administration to squeeze Chinese chip industry while spurring U.S. competitiveness in the sector. Meanwhile, the Biden administration has just released its latest national security strategy, which labels China as, quote-unquote, the most consequential geopolitical challenge to the United States. Has the U.S. gone all out to hobble China's high-end chip industry? Will the U.S. tactics achieve its intended goals? I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Professor Alexandro Teixeira, Distinguished Professor at the School of Public Policy and Management at Tsinghua University and former Brazilian Minister of Tourism, and from Shanghai by Professor Joseph Mahoney from East China Normal University. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. Thank Professor you. Teixeira, let me go to you first. Uh, help us understand the latest announcement. I mean, the new export controls are intended to, quote-unquote, restrict China's ability to obtain advanced computing chips, develop and maintain supercomputers and manufacture advanced semiconductors. That's according to the Bureau of Industry of Security under the U.S. Commerce Department. What exactly do these measures mean? The uh, United States and China have been fighting for leadership in, in several technological sectors. And chip uh, is one of the main components. Semiconductor is one of the main components of these different segments. You can think about electroelectronics, uh, medical equipment, so forth. So United States is trying to protect its industry and also to avoid the leadership of China has gained in different sectors. So this is not a measure about trading, uh, it's a measure about protectionism, protecting its own industry and also protecting uh, international markets for China to have access more competitively in leading innovation. This is nothing new. I mean, we have seen a series of uh, similar measures, not just in the chip industry, for instance, just counting from last year, for instance, in April, U.S. blacklisted seven Chinese supercomputing entities. And in July last year, U.S. adds 23 Chinese companies to economic blacklist. And then in December last year, another eight Chinese technology companies for tracking so-called minorities in China and then U.S. blacklist quantum computing companies in China last November. In June this year, the BIS added five Chinese entities to its so-called entity list for accepting or utilizing forced labors in Xinjiang. And then the U.S. also in October added uh, 13 Chinese companies to a blacklist, including drone makers and uh, genomics firms. Uh, Professor Mahoney, What's different between this latest sets of uh, regulations concerning China's ability to procure and to produce chips, high-end chips, with the host of previous regulations I've mentioned? So, you know, I think that what we're seeing here is these incremental steps towards uh, what appears to be a, a full-fledged attack on China's uh, technology sector. Um, the, the U.S. can't afford 
to decouple as much as some policymakers dream. They can't do it so suddenly. Uh, but over time, I think we, we're seeing this this trend deepen. Um, and again, we'll, we'll come to see this as uh, these developments that you've described and, and the new one that's just occurred uh, as these as these incremental steps towards uh, decoupling, if not uh, a much larger uh, Cold War. I think the, the key questions, uh, however, will be uh, how might China reciprocate and, and uh, what will America's technology sector do? Uh, you know, will U.S. companies play by Washington's new rules? Will they find ways to circumvent them or lobby uh, hard and finance politicians that may choose uh, a different course? You know, we have uh, a number of uh, empirical studies that show the U.S. is an oligarchy. And if uh, America's uh, tech giants really decided to change policymaking, then perhaps, you know, they could do so. But, you know, perhaps they, they uh, fear uh, competition with Chinese firms and, and they themselves are seeking this kind of protectionism. Well, the United States has been accusing China of um, unfair trade practices. The then U.S. Trade Representative even tried to use public morals as a way to defend the disastrous trade war that was launched by the previous administration against China uh, in front of the World Trade Organization. Of course, it was a uh, total disaster for the United States, and they lost the case in front of the World Trade Organization. Is the United States eating its own words here, Professor Mahoney? Is the the United States really using whatever means, regardless of rules that itself eroded, that itself set up in the first place, to compete with China against all odds? You know, I think that, that what is really remarkable about these developments, as, as you've alluded, is that, you know, China is playing uh, by this the, these rules, by this uh, global economy that was largely put in place uh, by the United States itself when the United States had clear competitive advantages. And now that those advantages have narrowed and, in chi and China has started to, to excel, the U.S. wants to change the rules of the game. But I think, you know, all of this, uh, uh, all of these developments uh, are signaling uh, a self-defeating uh, 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 tactic. You know, America won't be able to sell its best products to China. It will be losing access to the Chinese market and therefore a global market share and significantly worsening the trade deficit along the way. Uh, additionally, no one really expects this to stymie uh, Chinese technological development. Uh, we already see China responding effectively to this challenge and uh, associated uh, achievements outstripping uh, expectations. So, you know, the, the Chinese system was, in fact, built to deal with this kind of challenge. It, it works best when these kinds of problems arise. So we'll see China developing at speed the ability to produce its own chips and then eventually uh, likely dominating the global marketplace. You know, and in the meantime, uh, international companies like those found in South Korea and other places are going to find themselves pinched. Uh, we already see this happening uh, with several firms applying for exemptions uh, in order to keep their businesses afloat. Uh, but all in all, I don't see how this policy achieves its goals, uh, but I do see how it produces the exact opposite of its intentions. Professor Teixeira, how do you see the consequence of uh, the whole set of uh, regulations playing out for chip makers? Because right now they are facing a rather difficult situation because China is a very important uh, partner, very important market as well for them. But now the United States is saying, OK, don't deal with China, don't supply China, otherwise you have a big problem. But then where else? So um, how, do you, how do you see the... the the, the difficulties see, faced by these it, chip makers. It's a disaster from the perspective of industrial innovation policy for U.S. It's a disaster. Everybody that works with industrial innovation policy knows that controlling export or avoid 
your companies, national companies, to export or to deal with the largest market in the world that has been growing more than 20% a year is a disaster. It cannot work. Everybody knows that. And I think even if the, 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 the policymaking in the United States, at least a good portion knows that, are against that. So I hope uh, that will change. But there is the impact of the national politics of the United States. We need to remember that Joe Biden is going to the half of his mandate. Uh, his policy didn't produce the results that he was expecting. A, a lot of announcements, but didn't really uh, touch or change the structural problems that the U.S. economy have. And this is, again, in my opinion, is a complete disaster. The United States should be doing the opposite. Leadership of technology and innovation comes from cooperation, not isolation. And that's what the U.S. is doing. Well, the United States is also pressing uh, foreign companies, for instance, the Dutch company ASML Holding, which is the world's leading photolithography system maker. Uh, the U.S. is pressing this company or basically forcing this company not to sell its advanced uh, chip making machines to China. Is the U.S., Professor Mahoney, going to threaten and punish every company that's seen by the U.S. as assisting the strategic competitor that the China is in the, in the eyes of the United States? Is the U.S. playing fair in this competition. It's setting the rules, it's breaking its rules. Um, Professor Mahoney, you know, is there a rule in the United States' eyes? You know, I think what, what there is, is there's a, there, there are two things. There's, <laughs> there's the immediate uh, propaganda objective associated with the upcoming uh, high, uh, hotly contested midterm uh, election and uh, Biden's uh, ability to sequence announcements to try to outcompete Republicans on the national security uh, um, um, topic, uh, and, and both sides are obsessed with uh, China hysterically. Um, that's that's one key issue. The other issue, obviously, is uh, the United States is is has committed itself uh, for for whatever reason. Um, even though uh, none of us can really understand the logic or or how this will produce the desired outcome, but it's committed itself to this path, and it's clear that it's going to try to punish. Um, not just American firms, but uh, uh, firms throughout Europe, and this is a this is a big concern among a lot of Europeans right now that feel themselves increasingly vulnerable um, because of the conflict in Ukraine and their overdependence on the U.S. for security. Right. That they will have to play by America's rules in order to survive. And at the same time, the United States is proving not so reliable when the Europeans are really depending on the U.S.'s help or assistance. Uh, uh, is that the reason, Professor Teixeira, that German Chancellor Olaf Scholz has uh, recently said that decoupling from China will be the wrong answer, noting that globalization has been a success story that enabled prosperity for many people? Is the Biden administration betting on the wrong cards? I think completely, uh, because European Union, if you see different countries like France, uh, like German, uh, like Italy, for example, they have a very good trade relation and science technology innovation cooperation uh, with China. I, I don't believe those countries, they would accept the interference at the level of interference that the United States is proposing to do it. And again, as Professor Mahoney just mentioned, maybe this is a marketing, uh, a propaganda act of Biden for the midterms election. We know that lately, since Trump and even Obama, the internal politics in the United States has played a major role for foreign policy. So I, I, I hope and I think the, 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 the American policymaker come to the senses to understand that industrial innovation policy cannot be done in that way. 
Many thanks to Professor Alexander Teixeira yes. joining us from Tsinghua University and Professor Joseph Mahoney joining us from East China Normal University. Thank you very much. We'll take a short break and when we come back, the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China convenes on Sunday. What do developing countries think of it? I'll speak to a former Egyptian prime minister. Stay with us. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is the point. What will be the significance of the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China on developing countries such as Egypt? On October the 12th, the 19th Central Committee of the CPC concluded its seventh and final plenary session in the lead-up to the 20th National Congress of the CPC. According to a communique, the session took stock of the work of the CPC since the last National Congress, noting that the past five years have been unusual and extraordinary, and the session made full preparation for the upcoming 20th National Congress. What does the upcoming Congress mean for developing countries such as uh, Egypt? And what does China's development in the next stage mean for the rest of the world? In an exclusive interview, I talked to Dr. Isam Sharaf, former Prime Minister of Egypt. Now, the 20th National Congress of the Communist Party of China is scheduled to convene on October the 16th, this Sunday in Beijing. Chinese President Xi Jinping said in July that this Congress will look ahead to China's two-stage development plan toward the middle of this century and outline strategic tasks for the next five years in particular. Why do you think this Congress is attracting so much attention around the world? What is its significance? Uh, thank you very much. Um, in fact, this uh, Congress is very special because it comes uh, under a very difficult and complicated international uh, circumstances. This is one thing. COVID and, uh, and uh, Russia, Ukraine, war and so forth. Um, the second thing is, of course, China is a, is a great country and the world is anxious to, to know about China directions in the short and long term, especially this Congress. And also I can see actually that, that the world is, for me, divided into two groups. The first group, which is the majority, are countries that actually support China and believe in the Chinese uh, capability uh, for, uh, to, uh, that can uh, achieve global peace and development. The other part is minority, and these countries actually are working to either stop Chinese progression or at least slow down Chinese progression. Both groups in favor of China and against China are very much uh, looking for the results of this Congress uh, to see what are the directions and the, the intention of China. So that's why this Congress is very important also. Uh, so that's why I can summarize that, that this uh, Congress is very important both on the international level and also on the national level or Chinese, uh, China level. So uh, uh, putting this together is really what makes this, uh, uh, this uh, Congress is very unique and very important. And I believe the results will be uh, very solid and, and uh, will add much to the uh, journey of China 
towards a global uh, community of shared future. What are your expectations for China's development in the next stage? What does that mean for the rest of the world, especially for developing countries or the majority of countries that you just mentioned? Before I talk about the next stage, let me talk about the uh, during the epidemic, epidemic the COVID-19, China was able to, of course, control the, uh, in a very professional way, control the epidemic. And also at the same time, China succeeded in having, in having economic and social development and uh, at very sound uh, levels. So that's, that tells us that China is capable of facing uh, challenges. And during the next stage, I believe that China will continue its development and China will follow the, the model that was presented in the 14th five-year plan, uh, which 2021 to 2025, uh, which actually presented uh, a new development uh, model called the uh, dual circulation development pattern, where actually it's depending on the domestic development and then domestic and international development will work together. This is a very unique and very important because I always believe that strong and solid internal, that's, that's, that's very important to face local challenges and also international challenges. So I believe uh, following the, the, the uh, policies and strategies and, and uh, 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 techniques presented in this uh, five-year plan is, is, is the roadmap for China development uh, in, the, uh, in the next stage. Um, what that means to the world and especially developing countries, in fact, it's a model. China become like, like sometimes I call China like solved example. People can look at how China faced problems and, and developed under very severe conditions from a, a very poor country under the CPC, of course, and the leaders of the CPC, uh, moved from a very poor country to a very strong, solid, and superpower, uh, having the, the, the second economy in the world and first trading and first manufacturing. So that's, that's, that's an example. And uh, China, always my friends and officials in China say we are developing countries. So when people, when developing countries around the world uh, and China lovers, look at this model and see how the developing country became a, a, a such advanced like China, so that gives them inspiration and, and the way they can follow. Uh, and that's very important. Mm. And that's what we can see. Mm. Yeah. Well, of course, China does not see itself as a superpower at all at this stage, although we have the goal, we have that uh, ambition to rejuvenate our nation, but uh, we do not see ourselves as a superpower. But uh, China has indeed launched several cooperative proposals over the past decade, for instance, the Belt and Road Initiative, and more recently, the Global Development Initiative and the Global Security Initiative. How do you see these proposals and what do they mean for developing countries? Well, I see these proposals as a very civilized way to address global cooperation, development, and peace. Yes, uh, very civilized if compared to some countries which call for divisions and pushing to revive 
the Cold War era. So that's in general. And these proposals mean a lot for developing countries. Again, these proposals provide developing countries and the people of developing countries the opportunity to, to benefit from, uh, from uh, uh, these uh, initiatives, uh, BRI and GDI and GSI, and also benefit from them and to take a positive role in global cooperation, development and security. So it's not only receiving, but actually this globality of the initiatives allow these countries to be uh, to play a positive role in uh, in, uh, in these initiatives and in the global, as I said, global cooperation, development, and peace. You once said that peace and development are the goals of the global international community should achieve together. What challenges are we facing now in seeking these goals and what is needed most right now? I believe that the challenges, uh, to, 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 to be brief, unilateralism, domination, and selfishness. These are the main challenges. And I, I have a strong feeling that there are some countries are unaware of the fact that we are very connected and no single country or even region can face global challenges alone. So these are the challenges. Some countries uh, uh, want to dominate. Some countries uh, believe in the, in they are the only country to, to take decisions and, and uh, take actions without uh, reference to the global and international system. So that's why unilateralism, domination, and selfishness. And what's needed, of course, there's a lot of things, but let me say I always dream of a, a new coalition of peace-loving countries uh, getting together under the leadership of, 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 a, of, um, of a country that can handle this global intention uh, and I believe China can play, play a very important role in that. These countries have to work together to provide the world a new or a new world, to provide a new world under multilateralism and working together to build global peace and development community or world. That's, that's, that's what I can see. We have to get together. We have to influence the international order and, and to, to, to move from unilateralism to multilateralism to achieve peaceful life. And, and as, I, as, as I said, and as President Xi always say, that's the, the, the shared future. We cannot work alone. So we need to get together to, to, to beat these uh, challenges. You have served as Egypt's Minister of Transportation from 2004 and 2005 and uh, also in your capacity as Prime Minister. You have visited China many, many times and you have a lot of interactions with your Chinese counterparts and ordinary Chinese people. What is one anecdote or one story you can share with us at this moment about your understanding of China that is different from how China or Chinese people or Chinese government is depicted in the international press okay of course you know i i, I visited china the first the first visit was in uh, 2005 when i was minister of transport and uh, uh, after i left my position as prime minister in 2000 
from 2014 to 2019, I visited China maybe 30, 35 times. And I have a lot of stories, but let me let me uh, select one of them. Um, I remember I was visiting Ninxia, and um, we were allowed to, to go to uh, an area where they have uh, economic houses for relatively poor people. And you have a chance, we had a chance to, to visit uh, one family, one Muslim uh, uh, family, and you had lunch with them. And actually it was a very, very nice time. And we, we talked to the people, uh, the fathers and grandfather, and also the grandchildren. And we have a very fantastic time. Uh, and we ate, of course, lunch. It was uh, very nice Chinese food and the snacks. And, and, and uh, why I'm saying that? I have, a, I have a lot of stories, but why I'm saying that? Because I, I can say with no hesitation that I, I felt how the minority like or ethnic group like Muslims are actually enjoying their own rights there. They have um, uh, nice housing. They have um, uh, uh, actually vacation in, in Muslim uh, 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 religious occasions. Uh, and uh, they, they, they enjoy their life. So that's why I, I, I feel that this is very important for me and very important to tell the world that this issue of discrimination and ethnic uh, racism and things like that is nothing more than a media war against China. Thank you so much, former Prime Minister of Egypt, Dr. Isam Sharaf, joining me from Cairo. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. You've got the point. Situated along the ancient Silk Road, where fine arts and divine beliefs merged with the natural world. It's where the East and West interacted, and where the world's largest Buddhist art gallery still fascinates and amazes people today. A place where stories of life and death, love and hatred, passion and desire, faith and sacrifice have been generated and told for 2,000 years. Buckle up for our new podcast, Why We Love Dunhuang, the one and only podcast that can take you to the fantasy world of Dunhuang and beyond through our audio tour. Listen and subscribe for free on the major podcast platforms. Why We Love Dunhuang? You will have your answers.